Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless. It's Pastor Jim. Happy Thanksgiving weekend for those of you who are celebrating this weekend and not watching this online two years from now. Uh, I hope you had a great weekend. Uh, I'm thankful for you and I'm thankful for our church. Uh, I'm thankful that we have a church of inviters. We've got a huge party coming up on December 3rd. You can check out reallife.la to see all the details on that. Uh, Taste of Glendora. There's going to be 20 different restaurants bringing food in. Great live music outdoors uh, and a fun time shall be had by all. So thank you. Thank you for being a church that likes to invite friends to things and gives us excuses to throw parties around here. Uh, and what I do is when I invite people to a party like the one that's coming up, I think, now what am I going to invite them to after they love that? Because they're going to love that event. Maybe it's Christmas Eve service is the next one around the corner. If not a small group uh, at your house or a worship service, uh, I always try to think in terms of what's the next thing I'm going to invite them to because I know they're going to like this. Um, so thank you uh, for being a church of inviters. Also, thank you for your uh, generosity through the course of this year. We're uh, nearing the end of the year. Uh, and I know there are those who uh, wait to do a, a last uh, minute year end financial gift. Uh, we've been um, we've been blessed at this church this year. You've been generous. The staff has been responsible in their spending. So we're not facing any kind of great uh, budgeting crisis. Uh, but we did have an electrician wander through the buildings recently and look at everything and say some of the fixtures in your church are original to the building and they really need to be updated for safety's sake. So we're having our whole building rewired end to end and updating the, the lighting in the main worship space. So if you'd like to help give Real Life a Christmas present, you can go to reallife.la forward slash give. Uh, and if you have a year in giving that you've planned on or praying over, uh, maybe pray about giving your church a, a Christmas gift here at the end of the year so that we can uh, update all the wiring and uh, keep the building safe and well lit. There you go. Uh, we're going to continue in our series of teachings on the book of James. We've been studying this letter written by a first century disciple of Jesus, who's also the brother of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. And he's become a great leader in the Jerusalem church, in the early church. And, and James is focused on ethical living. He wants to tell us if you've decided to follow Jesus, it should change your life. And here are some distinctive ways that your life should change. You should have better control over the things you say. You should have better control over your anger. You should have uh, better control over uh, the way you care for and respond to the poor. Uh, you should have control over the inclination towards favoritism for people who can pay you back. There are all these different ways that when the gospel gets in our hearts, it should change who we are. And then because we go out in Jesus' name with changed lives, our changed lives can change lives. And that's what James is working on. Uh, Martin Luther, the great theologian, really did not like the book of James because he says there's not enough gospel in it. It's not about how I'm saved by grace. It's all about good works. But, but James is saying, once you've been saved by grace, that ought to transform you. That ought to change who you are on the inside. And that the way you're changed ought to change the world. And, you know, he, he's really on to something here. Because one of the greatest witnesses that we have to the world around us is our, is our ethical behavior when we demonstrate that Jesus has changed uh, how we respond to the world, who we are. 
And so we're going to continue in our uh, reading of the book of James today and, and look at uh, some of the, the changes that James calls us to. And, and when you read this, I really want you to think about it like somebody who has discovered a, a health regimen in the middle of an unhealthy population. And he said, I figured it out. I know how to be healthy and I'm sleeping better and I have less anxiety and I'm happier. Come be healthy with me because that's how James sees good behavior. It's not earning God's favor or finding a way to heaven. It's simply living a healthy and right life now. And James knows this from his, from his brother, his earthly brother, Jesus, that the ethics of Jesus were different than any other ethical system in the world. To this day, there is no ethical system like the ethical teachings of Jesus. I've heard all kinds of people say, well, all religions kind of teach the same thing. They all teach that you should love one another. No, they don't. People who say that haven't studied world religions. A good swath of the world religions out there teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Get revenge when people wrong you. And other religions teach just abandon all your desires and just disappear into the mist. Those aren't the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' teachings are, are radically different than those. So I've heard people say, well, all, all gods of all religion are just the same. It's more like this. Imagine uh, Billy and Susan are having a conversation. And Billy says, you know, when I was, when I was little, when I was a kid, there was this, this guy in the house that we called dad. And Susan says, yeah, our house too. In our house, we had a guy who's called, who we called dad. Maybe it's the same guy. And Billy goes, well, I don't know. He always cared for me and took care of me and provided for me. And then Susan says, mine too. It's probably the same guy we're talking about. He, there was a guy who we called dad who cared for me and took care of me. And Billy says, my dad taught me that I should love other people and never get revenge on them. And Susan goes, oh, no, my, my dad told me if somebody does wrong to you, you should punch him in the face. Maybe we're not talking about the same guy. And that's, that's really the, distinct, the distinction between different religions out there. We, we all talk about a God who's a creator or a lawgiver or a judge in the end. But if you're talking about different personalities, you're talking about different gods. And the ethic of Jesus reveals the personality of our God. And it's a distinctive. It's different than other, other faiths. And one of the greatest appeals of the Christian faith is the ethic of Jesus. The ethic that not only should we love one another, we should love our enemies. We should forgive those who wrong us and pray for those who persecute us. We should live with a, a, a generosity and abandonment, with a sense that our lives are taken care of by God. We don't have to worry for ourselves. It is, it is radically different than any other ethical system out there. And so James wants to tell his, his audience, his congregation, this is the way to healthy life. This is different than anything else. This is the most appealing thing uh, you'll ever see out there. It's like when you're uh, in, a, in a beach community and you're looking to park your car and get out on the beach, but all the houses are blocking the path between the street and the beach. And you finally find one of these little signs that say beach access this way. And there's a little pathway that leads from the street to the beach. And you finally get there. Oh, I'm at the beach. This is great. Um, Jesus is the, the pathway to a healthy life. And many of us are trapped behind the way everybody else is living. But Jesus is that pathway that leads us to a, a paradise of healthy living. Uh, that's the heart of James. That's what he wants us to, to see because change lives, change lives. And so uh, we're gonna read from James chapter three today. 
uh, starting at verse 13 uh, and pick up where we left off and look at the, the, the next virtue that James wants to highlight, which is humility. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. And I, I just love that line, humility that comes from wisdom. If you, if you grow in wisdom, you should grow in humility. That's such a profound thing. And it's not cross-cultural. This is an ethical virtue on which cultures have disagreed. Not all cultures have valued humility. Some cultures see humility as weakness. Certainly in the ancient Roman Empire, in which jo James li uh, lived, in which he was ruled over, they exalted in triumph and glory. You lived for glory. If you failed to live gloriously, you took your own life. But whatever humility they practiced was just for show, because they celebrated in the exaltation of whoever did the best. So writing about humility in a culture like that was radically countercultural. The, the pathway that Jesus was, was not the pathway of Caesar or the Roman Empire. Um, the, the difference between the Christian teachings and the way some cultures think of humility is as stark as the difference between a Prius driver and a pickup truck driver. And some cultures look at virtue, <clears throat> virtue the way a pickup truck driver looks at a Prius driver. You know, what kind of car is that? Well, it gets good, good gas mileage and it's good for the environment. Yeah, but it's not a man car, is it? <laughs> I used to drive a Prius. <laughs> it's not a man car, is it? And that's how the Roman Empire looked at Christianity. They're weak. Not just in the ancient world, in the modern world. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher who was writing up to around the year 1900, uh, criticized Christianity, hated Christianity because it preserved the weak. It cared for the poor and the defenseless, the widow and the orphan. Nietzsche said, the, the best humanity can do is to glorify itself by practicing genius and artistry and, and su superior accomplishment. The, the greatest human beings are the ones who show the, the peaks towards which humanity can ascend. And the bottom class should be written off. And some 30 years after that German philosopher wrote those things, a German leader carried out in an awful way the principles of celebrating greatness and writing off the lower class. That was the philosophy behind the Third Reich, but behind Hitler. And they were reading Nietzsche at the time. In a, in a world like that, James says, if, if you really want to live the good life, live in the humility that comes from wisdom. Watch what God does when you live a life of humility. I've been reading a, uh, a biography of Elon Musk uh, written by Walter Isaacson that's just come out. Um, fascinating life of an important person. Not, not exactly the model of humility most of us uh, would want, but there is a, was a moment in uh, Musk's life where he experienced the fruit of humility. Uh, he played a role in starting a company that would become PayPal. But in the midst of, of the, the growth and building of that company, his executives, his board, staged a coup and fired him as the CEO, drove him out as the CEO. And instead of, instead of being ugly to them, uh, he left graciously. His words were, life is too short for grudges. And he left uh, graciously. Um, he actually made peace with them. 
And years later, he started SpaceX, this company that's flying rockets. We see the, the, the trails of the rockets here in Southern California from SpaceX uh, flying satellites up there. Uh, but when he when Musk first started that company, the first rocket blew up and the second rocket blew up and the third rocket blew up and he was out of money and the company was about to fail. And those executives from PayPal that had chased him out came back and because he had left peaceably, because he had made peace with him, they funded the next launch of a rocket and it worked. And that's why SpaceX succeeded because at the right moment in time, Elon Musk lived in humility and he experienced the fruits of that humility. Well, the scriptures say that that's what God wants for you and I. James says that that's the good life, a life lived in wisdom, which bears fruit in humility. And you see that in the, in the Hebrew scriptures in our Old Testament, where God acts exactly like those executives did, where when, when God sees us at our lowest point, he rewards our humility by lifting us up. When, when we come to a lowest point in life and turn to Jesus and say, I can't do this on my own, he's eager to lift us up. You see it in the, in the Hebrew scriptures in the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, Judges 5, 6, 7. There, there's this story about a leader of God's people, Gideon, and he's about to go off to war and he has 32,000 warriors behind him. And God says, that's too many. And if you go off and fight with this large army, when you win, you're going to take credit for it. And I, I want people to see that it was, it was I who led you, it was me who led you to success. So I want you to whittle down the size of your army. I want you to tell any man out there, if he's afraid, he can leave. And Gideon did, and 22,000 men left that day. They went from 32,000 down to 10. And God said, that's still too many. I want you to whittle it down further. Send them down to the river to drink. And the ones who get down on their hands and knees to drink, you send them home. But if they, if they scoop up water in their hands and drink with their hands, those are the ones you're going to take into battle. And I always thought that's a, that was a weird discernment process. That was a weird measure to decide who gets to go. But I realized what I think was happening was the people who get down on their hands and knees to drink, they, they, they put themselves off guard. They're no longer paying attention. Whereas those who scoop water with their hands to drink are still watching around. They're still being faithful to their responsibility. And, and God whittles them down to 300 men, from 32,000 down to 300 of those who are faithful and unafraid. And that, that's what God wants from us. The humility to trust, I can't do this on my own. I don't have enough, but I'm faithful and I'm not afraid. The great principle of humility in scripture is this. Without God, we can't. And without us, he won't. Without God, we can't do it. We don't have the power. We don't have the resources. We, we are too dependent. It, it takes that humility to say, I can't do this. I really need Jesus. I can't do this myself. But, but without us, he's not just gonna provide for us everything we need while we act spoiled or afraid. He's waiting for us to be faithful, to say, I, I trust you. I can't do this myself, but I trust you. Without, without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. And, and that's, that's the humility that comes from wisdom. That, that's the, the great principle that comes uh, from, from wisdom, uh, that we might have the humility to realize we need God in all things, but he is waiting on us to be faithful. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's keep going.
Uh, I like this text. This is a good text. This is, uh, this is one of my favorite lines in James, um, the humility that comes from wisdom. Okay, verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And James here is uh, speaking of the culture of the first century church, which we know if you read through the Bible over and over again, the first century churches were in conflict. Paul writes letters to the Corinthians that's just a list of instructions on how to deal with all the things that they're fighting about. They have one issue after another, and the Corinthian letters reads like, okay, well, if you're fighting about this, here's the resolution. If you're fighting about this, stop it. If you're fighting about this, you should love each other more. That's 1 Corinthians. Galatians, they're betraying Paul, and Paul's letter to the Galatians is mad, and he even des describes getting in a fight with Peter in his letter to the Galatians. Jesus, in every day of his ministry, is arguing with the Pharisees. The, the first century church was rife with conflict, and you know, churches ever since have been. And, and James says that comes from envy and selfish ambition. That comes from trying to position yourself by the standards of the world, uh, trying to climb to that peak so you look good. And it makes you stop paying attention to the people who are least and lost and lonely, and you just pay attention to yourself. All it leads to is conflict. I remember... Um, in my early days of ministry, I would go to um, conferences and gatherings of pastors. And at certain gatherings, the pastors would say, let's go around the room and we'll say our name and the name of our church and then how many people attend our church. And the only motive for asking that was ego. It was just so they could brag about how big their churches were. And it got so irritating after a while that when I was asked that question, how many people you go to your church, I would say 40. And I wasn't lying. I was using the number 40 in the hyperbolic way that the Bible uses the number 40. You know, it rained for 40 days and he was in the desert for 40 days and they wandered around for 40, day, 40 years. That, the Bible uses 40 the way my kids use. I, I, it took me 100 hours to finish my homework. They're not lying. It's just hyperbolic. And so I'd go to these conferences and then people would say, pastors would say, how big is your church? And I would say 40. And they'd go, oh, sorry. <laughs> James says that comes from the, the world. That is demonic thinking. To, to, to measure yourself by the standards of, of envy and competition is not heavenly. Instead, understand God is providing for you and taking care of you, and that when you're whittled down to a number like 300, that's when God delivers, because everybody will know it was him and not you. And you, in humility, can live with nothing but thanks because God provided for you. I remember back when I went to college many years ago, and I'll, I'll date myself. This was before anybody had a, a phone to carry around. This was before anybody had computers. I mean, they were they were coming out, but they not everybody had. I didn't have one. And uh, uh, in the engineering uh, classes, the competition was so ruthless that one of my friends, uh, who was an engineer, um, said that uh, in in some of the classes before they would sit down to take a test, which we did with pencils back in the day. Um, people would reach over and break the tip of your pencil off so that you'd lose a couple minutes going to sharpen it because the competition was so fierce. They were trying to make sure you got a worse grade on the test than them. And he said he actually became a Christian because one of the students in one of his engineering class in his early years at college, um, he was sick uh, for a couple weeks. And this, this 
friend of his um, took notes on all the classes that he missed. And when he came back to class, he said, I noticed you were missing and I took notes on everything you missed so that you wouldn't miss out on the notes. And the guy was stunned because that was not the culture of the engineering classes. They were way more competitive than that. And he said, why? And the guy said, because I'm a Christian. And that's all it took. And that's what James wants for us, to live the good life, to take the, the pathway of Jesus towards healthy life, and that our lives might be changed and we would go on to change the lives of others. That, that's the, the picture that James is painting here. All it takes is realizing we are not the main character in our stories. We are not the protagonist of life. Jesus is the protagonist of life. He's the main character. We're not unimportant. We're not irrelevant. We're not what gamers call an NPC. We're not a non-player character, somebody that's just computer automated to help the, the main character on his way. We actually count. Jesus actually loves us. We matter to him, but he's the protagonist. He's the main character. And the sooner we recognize that he's the main character, the better our lives get. We fall into place because we realize our lives exist to glorify him. Without him, we can't. And without us, he won't. Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the famed German theologian who died uh, in World War II. I hadn't thought about this. He's a, a German theologian who died as a result of the philosophies of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Died in the German concentration camps. He wrote a book called Creation and Fall, in, in which he says the response that the Christian church ought to offer to a broken world is to counter the offer that Eve made to Adam when she extended the forbidden fruit and said, here, taste. Eve held out the forbidden fruit, the fruit that God had said not to eat in the Garden of Eden, and said, here, taste this. And Adam ate it, and his eyes were open, and that's the, the story of the fall. Bonhoeffer says that the Christian church should, in response, offer the fruit of the Spirit to a broken world. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. In response to her offering the broken and forbidden fruit, we offer the fruit of the Spirit. What, what James describes here, a pure life that's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. We offer the fruit of the Spirit to a broken world to entice them back to the God who loves them. Living an ethical life, a life that's changed by Jesus, that's transformed by Jesus, is one of the best witnesses we have to the world around us. James doesn't write this letter to be self-righteous. It's not to, to scold us. It's not to shame us. It's not to tell us we haven't done good enough. The, the Christian life is as different than religious self-righteousness as inviting someone to the gym is different than telling them they need to go to the gym. I mean, think about that. If you tell somebody, you know, you really need to go to the gym, you're out of shape, you need to, you need to go, you know, it's time. That's, that's terrible, that's condescending, that's mean. But when you invite me, hey, I'm going to the gym, do you wanna go with me? That's kind of fun. 
there's no condemnation that comes with that at all. And that's what James means to do. Not to, to scold people and say, you haven't lived well enough, but say, hey, look at this pathway that I found to healthy living that my life and that will change the lives of everybody around us when we practice it together. Hey, uh, if you haven't done it already, um, when you're here at Real Life uh, uh, in person, pick up one of our blessing cards. Or if, if you're not in the neighborhood, if you're far away watching this, you can do this at home. Take a card and write down the names of eight people that you're going to pray for. Eight may seem like a lot. It's just two families of four. Pray, eight people that you're going to pray for, that you're going to be generous with, that you're going to bless, and to whom you're going to be a witness to the health that you found in Jesus. And pray for those people every day. Uh, we started this back in January this year, and I told you, if you do this every day, there will be people worshiping with you at Christmas Eve who were not in church last Christmas Eve. And on my list of eight, two people have already accepted Jesus th this year, and a third one is reading the Bible for the first time. The message of James is this. Changed lives. Changed lives. So put all your hope in God's kingdom and not in the structures of advancement in this world. Just trust in Jesus and let him make a way for you. Without him, you and I can't. And without us being faithful, he won't. Amen. Hey, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you pull us out of the competition and the rat race of this world in which People seek to exalt themselves and enviously climb to what they think is going to be success and happiness. Thank you for making a pathway to a real happiness and health in you. Help us to live wholly for your kingdom, trusting in you and your goodness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Happy Thanksgiving again. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.